Thanks for joining us online for today's message from our Sunday morning service, where we are learning how to make disciples who love God, love others, and serve the world. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged. For more information about Wilmot Center Missionary Church, go to wcmc.ca. Now prepare your hearts for what God wants to speak to you today. Do you ever wonder why we call it Good Friday? I mean, it seems so disjointed. Why would we call it Good Friday? It was the most infamous day, the worst day in all of history, the day our God was murdered. An innocent man was tortured to death by, the Roman, by Roman crucifixion. He was scourged until his back looked like raw hamburger. He was hanging by nails through his wrists and ankles. Every joint was dislocated. He suffered dehydration and terrible thirst and shock and finally asphyxiation unable to support the weight of his own body to even get a breath. He was mocked, he was exposed, he was forsaken, and he finally died. And we call this Good Friday. Does that just not seem a little odd to you? How can it be? I mean, what is wrong with us that we think this is a good day? And I think it's all a matter of perspective, and we're going to look at some of the perspectives on Good Friday on the cross. And you know, whether we think about it as a perspective on Good Friday or about Jesus or about our faith in general, I think we will see some things that were taking place on that Friday that we still see with us today in our world and in our culture. So we're going to start. We've already mentioned Joseph of Arimathea, seen his video. Uh, but the first one we want to look at today is the perspective of the priest. The priests, uh, for Good Friday, for them, Good Friday was a problem that got solved. See, they had a problem and they wanted to deal with it. That problem's name was Jesus. Um, and so Good Friday was a good day for them because they finally solved their problem. Jesus had been nothing more than a troublemaking interloper who had been nothing but trouble to them. He challenged their religious system. He publicly refuted their arguments. He broke all their legalistic rules. He interrupted their profitable temple trade by turning over the temples and chasing the money changers out of the temple. He shamed them by exposing their own sin rather than condemning a woman who was called, caught in adultery. He refused to answer their questions when, he, asked, when they, he was asked them, who did he think he was anyway to come here and challenge our religious system? To them, Jesus was just a nuisance and they finally got rid of him. He was dead and gone, problem solved. Jesus, dealing with Jesus was a matter of expediency for them. In John 11, 49 and 50, we read this, but a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, that's the rest of the priests, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you to, that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. In other words, whatever works, whatever is expedient, Jesus had not come in a way that they were expecting. He wasn't what they were looking for. And they failed to recognize him for who he truly was. Surely they did not need that kind of a savior, did they? So they got rid of him. For the priests, Good Friday was a day of victory, of success, of relief, maybe even of joy. The problem was solved. It was a day for smugness and self-righteousness. For some people today, Jesus is a problem. They think, okay, he was crucified. He was some nice teacher that lived a couple of thousand years ago, and he died, and he's buried, and that's the end of the story, and I don't have to deal with him anymore. 
We see that in our world. Jesus can be a problem if you don't want to follow him. Perspective number two is, is from Judas's perspective. See, for him, Good Friday was just an opportunity to be embraced. How can I use this to my advantage? Although Judas had been a follower of Jesus, his main priority was money. He had, quote-unquote, served as the treasurer for the school, and he did embezzled funds. As he realized that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and was probably going to die there, that's what Jesus was talking about, Judas realized that he had an opportunity to make some money. He could betray Jesus to the priests and be paid handsomely for his troubles. And as we know, he betrayed Jesus with a kiss, a hypocritical kiss in the garden. See, that kiss was supposed to be an act of loyalty. The student would come and kiss the master on each cheek, and that was a sign of my undying loyalty to you. But in behind the scenes, he'd planned something else. He'd planned to get rid of Jesus. He had turned him over to the Romans, to the priests, so they could arrest Jesus, so they could make a pretense of a court hearing and then condemn him to death. In Matthew 25, 14 to 16, we read this. Then one of the 12, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. For Judas, Good Friday was an opportunity, but it was also becoming a cause for soul-crushing guilt. He soon began to realize that he, what he had done and the guilt and the condemnation set in. Then when, Jesus, or sorry, then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said to him, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. He realized all of a sudden Jesus wasn't just going to be thrown in jail for a bit or he wasn't going to be whipped. He was actually going to be killed. And he's like, what have I done? My sin took him to the cross. Rather than repenting, he committed suicide. He went his own way and committed suicide. For Judas, Good Friday was a day for greed, for avarice, for success financially, followed by guilt and condemnation and remorse and finally death. You know, there are people in our world today that we've used the gospel as an opportunity to make money. Maybe it's a TV evangelist that lives a royal lifestyle behind the scenes. Uh, maybe it's just somebody who um, is prone to the prosperity gospel. You know, come to Jesus and he'll fix all your problems and make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, and it'll all be great. And we come for what we can get out of Jesus rather than for who he is and, what, and the honor that he is worthy of. Perspective number three is for those who in the crowd, who were in the crowd, that went along to get along. We'll just do what everybody else is doing. The religious leaders had paid some of the crowd to cry out, crucify him, and, you know, give us Barabbas, not Jesus. And uh, the others just fell in with the crowd. Do you ever wonder about that kind of mass hysteria or mass hypnosis or whatever? I remember, I'm, every once in a while you see this. Uh, Years ago, Montreal won the Stanley Cup, and what did the crowd do? They went out and tore the city apart. Does that make any sense? Yay, we got the cup. Let's rip up the stores and turn over cars and burn stuff. We'll party. You know, half those people didn't have a clue what they were doing. 
They just went along with what was going on in the world around them. Given a choice, the crowd had opted for Barabbas, an insurgent guerrilla fighter, a zealot. He'd been condemned for killing the hated Romans. Maybe he would be the conquering Messiah that they were waiting for. In any case, they cried out, Give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. For them, and the crowd that got caught up in the moment, truth didn't matter. Public opinion was all that was counting at that time. Who, who Jesus was didn't matter. What he taught wasn't important. Righteousness, morality, and justice took a backseat to public opinion. Like fish swimming upstream with the rest of the school, or like the proverbial lemmings that run headlong off a cliff to their deaths in the sea, the crowd determined the thinking and the actions of the individual. Maybe it was mass hysteria, maybe it was peer pressure, maybe it was just the excitement of joining in in some kind of riot after all. None of them had anything personally against Jesus. Why were, you know, don't you wonder why somebody didn't stop and go, what are we doing? This is craziness. But they just went along with what everyone else was doing. Today we face that same temptation to just go along with what the world's doing, to accommodate and to let them tell us what to believe and what to do. And uh, that's unfortunate. It's something we need to guard against. Perspective number four is that of Pontius Pilate. For him, Good Friday was a responsibility to be avoided. His question is, what should I do with Jesus? You know, he was the Roman governor. He had the authority to do whatever he wanted to do. He could have made up his mind one way or the other. And rather than exercising his authority, he looked at everybody else and said, so what do I do now? And let the crowd dictate to him what he would do. In Matthew 27, 22 to 26, we read, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. What a stupid vow to make. If you think that Satan didn't hear that, that's a perfect opportunity for him to be active in their lives. Oh, I swear. You know? And every once in a while in our society today, people expect us to swear some stuff. Then it's very powerful, especially when you say, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, but having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate had authority, he had responsibility, but he abdicated that responsibility and the crowd decide for him. He washed his hands and shifted the plane. Don't we do that as well sometimes? See, the question remains, what will we do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Pilate was controlled by the fear of the crowd. He wanted to keep the peace. He was willing to go along, to get along. And he claimed false innocence in that. From Pilate's perspective, Good Friday was just a responsibility to be avoided, and he felt he had no blame, no guilt, no shame in the whole deal. We still face that question, what will I do with Jesus? Perspective number five, for Mary and John, Good Friday meant the loss of a loved one. The events of that Friday morning meant only one thing, the death of somebody they loved greatly. For Mary, it was her oldest son, the head of her household, her provider, her protector, her innocence, her Lord, and she watched him die. 
For John, Good Friday was watching his best friend, his cousin, being tortured to death. Forget the theology, the prophecies, the promises. As they stood there before the cross, all they witnessed was the death of Jesus. They saw him take his last breath. They saw him die. That's all they could see through the darkness. Can you imagine the abject horror of seeing your son or your best friend being crucified? Can you imagine that? Think of your son. Think of your daughter. Think of your best friend hanging, having been scourged and beaten and nailed to a cross, hanging there for hours until he finally dies. Watching that, what an agonizing moment for them. You know, I, I, you'd like to think they had great faith and, oh, Jesus said he'd rise again, it'll all be fine. But it wasn't that way. All they could see in the darkest hour was that he had breathed his last and was gone. Good Friday was not good for them. It only held great sorrow and shock and despair. See, we can see Good Friday today in light of Resurrection Sunday. But if it weren't for Sunday, we would have absolutely no hope. It would just be despair. See, if we deny the resurrection, then we have no reason for hope. As Paul said, if there is no resurrection, we are of all men most miserable. We are in a mess. For them, Good Friday was the death of a loved one. Perspective number six, for the disciples, Good Friday meant the death of a dream. For three years, they'd followed him around the countryside, listening to him teach, having discussions with him, witnessing his miracles, hearing his promises. They left everything to follow him. For three years, they trekked around without really a place to live even, without income much. And now on Good Friday, the hopes and dreams and promises all died with Jesus. What fools they'd been. Can you imagine being a disciple on Good Friday? They all took off, ran away. Oh, I'm scared. So they took off. And Jesus dies, and, and you've got to be sitting there thinking, what an idiot I am to have followed this guy around here. Right? Does that not sound logical? For them, Good Friday was the death was the death of a dream, we might as well go back to fishing. Let's just go back to life as normal. And when we lose our faith and when we lose our hope, we just go back to life as normal. Perspective number seven for the Roman, was for the Roman soldiers, and Good Friday for them was just another's day, another day's work. It didn't really matter what they did that day. It was just part of their responsibility. Just some poor creature condemned to a cruel death. Just do your duty and get it over with. What did it matter if some Hebrew got himself killed? What was that to Rome? But then the sky grew dark and the ground shook, and one of them had an epiphany, a sudden realization of the truth. And he said, surely this man was the son of God. Don't you wonder what was going through that guy's mind and heart at that time? He's just nailed the nails in, crucified him, hung him on the tree, and he goes, uh-oh, this is God's son and I just killed him. The crushing weight of that realization, what have I just done? Remember the story of how Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple when he was 12 years old, and they lost him? Part of me wonders if when they realize and they're running around hysterically looking for Jesus, if they're not going, how do we tell God we lost his kid? 
right? I, mean, I don't mean to be sacrilegious about it, but you got to think, if they believed he was the son of God, yeah, we lost the son of God. Are you not just absolutely panicked? We lost our son Andrew once. He, well, he, he was playing in our neighbor's backyard, but we couldn't find him. And we looked up on the canal, and we called the police and everything. He was perfectly fine swinging on the swings. But at the time, it was like, and the police said, what's he wearing? It's like, I don't know. How tall is he? I don't know. What's he look like? I don't know. <laughs> it was just absolute panic, right? There are times when all you can think of is, how am I going to explain this? When we were first married, we were house-sitting for friends of ours. Judy and Charlie lived out in the country. And uh, besides looking after the house, we were looking after their new puppy, a German Shepherd puppy. And they had this long, winding driveway uh, through the forest. And uh, before they left, Charlie said, the dog will run up the driveway to meet you. Don't worry about it. He'll get out of the road. Just keep driving. So we come home, and the dog comes up, and we keep driving, and boom. And there was no yelp. There was no whining. There was no doggy running off into the bush. And I'm sitting there going, how am I going to tell Charlie I killed his puppy? That's all I could think of. How am I going to explain this? Got out of the car, and here's the dog at the front, sitting out the bumper going, I think he had a headache. <laughs> but I wonder about this Roman soldier. Suddenly the light comes on. He goes, surely this was the son of, what have I done? And Good Friday was a moment when he realized his own sin and his broken relationship with God. Wouldn't that just fill you with dread, with fear? But maybe it filled him with hope. Maybe this Jesus is who he claimed to be after all. Maybe he is the Messiah. For the soldiers, it was just another day at work. A confusing one, to say the least. You know, today we have people that are, are confused. They, they don't really know what to make of all. And to others, it just doesn't matter. To them, it was just a duty to be fulfilled. You know, in a crowd like this on Good Friday, there's some people that are here, probably two or three at least, that are here because mom or dad made them come or because their wife begged them to come or whatever. And coming here today was just a duty they had to get over and done with. They're kind of like the Roman soldiers. Perspective number eight is for the crowd at Golgotha, Good Friday was just a morning's entertainment. Let's go out you know, to the hillside and watch what's going on out there. Going on out there. It was a sick, gory form of amusement. They mocked. They said, hey, physician, heal yourself. Hey, you there, Messiah, come on down. You said you could save people. You can't even save yourself. It was just a big joke to them. For the crowd around the cross, Good Friday was just a sick amusement. And in our culture today, faith in Jesus is just something that's not taken seriously often. It's just sometimes it's an amusement. Something to be mocked, something to be... You know, just a social gathering. Come and see your friends. Hang out for a while and go home. Perspective number nine. For the priests in the temple, Good Friday was a cause for alarm. Matthew 27, 50 to 52 says this. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Can you imagine being in the temple? The temple was made up of, of a variety of parts, but two in particular. There was the holy place where the priests would go in and do their religious duties and, you know, the table of showbread and the candlestick and all that stuff. 
But behind the veil was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat. It was the holy place where God's presence was, and where it was so holy, only the right priest could go in once a year. And God was separated from the priests and from the people by this thick curtain. I forget all the dimensions, but I know it was, it was woven and it had several strands and several layers to it. Apparently, it was over a, a foot thick. So you're there working away, doing your priestly stuff, and all of a sudden, the thing rips open. And you're going, what is going on? Would that not just be bewildering to you? What does it mean? Then we have this little detail thrown in, the earthquake and the tombs being opened and bodies coming out of the grave and walking around. That would, you know, catch your attention, wouldn't it? You know, and, and people would be like, it'd be like zombie land, you know, like freaking out. People would be like, what, is, you know, what would you make of that? Except it was very confusing and very terrifying. What is going on? For the priests, Good Friday was just a day of confusion. What does this mean? Fortunately, we, from our perspective, know what Good Friday means. It means that our debt is paid and our sins are forgiven. Perspective number 10 for the thief on the cross, Good Friday represented one final desperate hope to be grasped. In Luke 23, 39 to 43, we, we read the story. And one of the criminals who, were, uh, who was hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him and said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under some sentence of condemnation, the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's interesting. The first thief paid no attention to his own sinful state. The second guy, he said, hey, we're dying because of what we've done. We're guilty. I confess, I'm a sinner. I did bad stuff, and I deserve to be here. And nevertheless, no matter how much I deserve to be here, Jesus, will you have grace on me, and will you save me, and will you take me to be with you? Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus did more than he asked, because he said, just remember me when you get there. In other words, Give me some kind of favor when you get to your kingdom. And Jesus went beyond that and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Right? Today, Willie Skydeman's with him in paradise. And so are all the other loved ones that we've lost. The first thief was arrogant and he only saw another wretch to be mocked. But the second thief saw one final hope. Just perhaps Jesus was the Christ. And if he was, he was his only hope for what happens after we die. Remember me. Save me, Jesus. Maybe you're like that thief. You're waiting to the last moment, counting on the hope that when your time comes, there will still be opportunity to come to Jesus. We're probably like one thief or the other, either mocking Jesus or looking to him. I'm a sinner condemned to die, and I need Jesus. Perspective number 11. For Jesus, Good Friday represented the sacrifice of ultimate obedience and the fulfillment of his life's purpose. Jesus had surrendered his life in obedience to the Father's will. It wasn't an easy choice. Remember how Jesus had prayed in the garden, is there any other way, Father? 
Is there any way this cup can pass from me? Do you have any other plan? Is there an alternative? Is there anything else we can do? But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus was so committed to the Father's will, he would even die that horrible death on the cross. He knew exactly what he was doing. You know what? Why would Jesus go to the cross if it wasn't to bear our sins? Why not turn tail and run out of the garden and beat it and just live life? But he had an assignment from God and he knew it and he accepted it and he faced that death for us. See, obedience is usually costly. And I've got to, you know, I have to wonder about Jesus hanging on the cross. Would the enemy not come and say, why are you doing this? The Bible tells us he could have called 10,000 angels to come and save him, right? You stick me on a cross, man, I'm out of there as fast as I can get. You know, it's like, why not just forget the whole thing? Why not? Why didn't Jesus just say, get me out of here, Father? Because he knew what he was doing and he knew what it would cost us if he didn't do what he was to do. And that was to die in our place. John 19.30 says, When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. That word, it is finished, tetelestai, means paid in full. Our sin, the wages of sin is death. And Jesus said, that wages, those wages, that penalty has now been paid. The debt of sin is gone. In Isaiah 53, 11, we read, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify many as he will bear their iniquities. Even hundreds of years before the cross, it was written that he would bear our iniquities. In Philippians 2, 8 to 11, we see, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God, therefore also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. For Jesus, Good Friday was the culmination of his life's work, the completion of his God-given assignment. It was both a horrible day because of the sacrifice and the pain, but it was a great one because he, had kn he knew he had done his job. You know, we need that perspective. That Good Friday was the day that my sin was paid. And now I can go free because Jesus did what he was to do. Finally, we want to look at the last perspective, and that's the perspective for the Father in heaven. Good Friday was both a horrible, also both a horrible experience and a day of great victory for him. You see, God knew what he was doing all along. He had this plan from before the foundation of the world. He had prophesied it many, many times, hundreds of years before. And now it was finally coming to pass. The perfect plan was finished. The ransom was paid in full and redemption was complete. He had us on his mind on Good Friday. He also had his son on his mind on Good Friday. You know, as much as Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't believe that God forsook him. I don't believe that God rejected him or abandoned him. It may have felt that way to Jesus, but the father was there. The father paid that sacrifice as well. And he looked at his son and I'm sure he was pleased. You know, when you see your son obeying you, even though it costs him something dearly, it does something for a father's heart, doesn't it? And I'm sure that as much as the day was horrible for the father, it was also a day of great joy because he knew that we could now be redeemed and his son had been faithful.
1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. God's plan of redemption had come to fruition. What joy that would bring to his heart to open the door for salvation, for the, the redemption of all of his children. It had now been opened. A terrible but wonderful plan of salvation had been accomplished. Good Friday was more than the death of his dear son. It was the death of sin. It was the death of death. It was a great victory. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, 15, 15 says, O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Good Friday, from God's perspective, was a day of great victory. Satan thought he'd won, didn't he? Yeah, he got rid of that, Jesus. But for the Father, it was a day of great, great victory. It was a wonderful day. That should be our perspective, that Jesus paid a horrible price, the price for my freedom and for yours, freedom from sin, from its destructive power, from eternal condemnation, from eternal separation from God. Jesus died to pay for all of that. And it's all ours for the asking. Grace is not cheap. It costs Jesus dearly, but it is free. It's free to all who will receive it. But like Jesus, I believe that a commitment to follow him should cost us everything. The disciples left all to follow him. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Yes, salvation is a free gift, but it should cost us our very lives. Full surrender to the will of God, regardless of what it costs us. So let me ask you, what's your perspective on Good Friday? Maybe you see Jesus or Good Friday or faith as just a problem to be solved or avoided. I don't need to deal with Jesus. That's an old story from 2,000 years ago. Maybe it's an opportunity to be embraced and you come with the attitude, what can I get from Jesus? What will it do for me? Maybe it's just public opinion to be followed. Forget thinking for yourself. Just go with the flow. Do what my culture is telling me to do and to believe. Maybe it's a responsibility to be avoided. I don't want to have to deal with Jesus. I'm here under duress. I really don't need to do anything with this. Maybe it's a loved one lost. Maybe it's the death of a dream. Maybe your faith and your hope are fading. Maybe doubt's killing them both. Maybe it's just another day's work, a duty to be fulfilled. Maybe it's a morning's entertainment, a social event. Maybe it's a cause for alarm or confusion. We don't really know what it means. Maybe, like the thief, your only hope is in Jesus. I hope so. Maybe Good Friday is for us an example of supreme obedience, regardless of the cost. If he died for me, I can live for him. Whatever your perspective, God says it's a day of great victory. But it's only a victory for you if you personally accept the meaning and the perspective of Good Friday. Thanks for listening online with us. We trust you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. If you have a prayer request or an encouraging story about what God has been doing in your life, please email us at amen at wcmc.ca. God bless.